Now hear the word of the Lord from 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Let each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. It's my joy to be with you. If you don't know, my name is Justin, and I'm the lead pastor here at the church, and we get to do something unique in the next couple weeks. Um, today, we're having a standalone sermon, so we usually just preach through books of the Bible, but each year, towards the end of the year, I get one standalone sermon, and I want to do that this morning, and then next week, we're going to have a year in review, and we're going to talk about and look at all the ways that God has blessed us in this past year, and then kind of look forward for what maybe would God would have for us in 2024. And um, we just had a membership class. We had 35 new members join our church, one of our largest ever uh, membership classes. We've got a lot of people joining our church. And so what I wanted to do today is kind of go back to some foundational truths that make us uh, a church. Like what, what's different about Sacred City in one sense, it's just scriptural, but we're coming from all these different backgrounds and we bring in a lot of different understandings of identity, understandings of what church should be like, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the best places to do that is the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, I preached an entire sermon series through 1 Corinthians that you can go back. Uh, listen, I, I don't necessarily recommend you do that. That was about 10 years ago or something. So I can't condone anything I actually said, okay? Uh, but, no, it, it's, it's probably 95% all right. Uh, but... The book of 1 Corinthians is an interesting book. See, Paul had planted this church in the city of Corinth, and Corinth was this bustling trade city, all right? It's a port city, and with a port city, especially around first century times, all kinds of interesting things from around the world were coming into it. So this city was known for um, worshiping a lot of different gods, religious pluralism, all kinds of different gods, lots of sexual immorality that were going on. They were wor worshiping sexually at temples, and there was just a lot of different, you could say, races, ethnicities, a lot of different stuff going on. Well, when Paul starts preaching the gospel and begins to, and disciples are being made, he plants this church where these people are coming from crazy different backgrounds. When I preached through 1 Corinthians, the title of the, the sermon series was Following Jesus in a Jacked Up Church. Because that's what Corinth was. Corinth was a jacked up church. Like when you're having, in Corinth, one of the instructions from Paul is like, there's a guy in you in there that's sleeping with his mother-in-law. Stop it. It's like, 
If you have to tell somebody that, like, you know that's a pretty jacked up church, right? And people were condoning it. And there were people that were coming in that were very wise in the world's understanding. And then there were people that were coming in from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. And they, were, they weren't mixing well, right? And they were, it was creating problems in the church. And so Paul really gets to the brass tacks of preaching the gospel in 1 Corinthians to remind people what's most important. And obviously that is Christ and Christ crucified and what he's done for us. And so what I want to do today is kind of go back to that and we're going to sit down in this text and we're going to see what the Lord would have to say for us to kind of remind us of some gospel truths going into this new year. Cool? All right, let me pray for us and we can get going. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you that we are not just on this spinning rock all by ourselves, trying to figure out how to live the best way we know how before we die. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you even put yourself into the womb of a woman named Mary, became one of us to teach us who you are, to show us what you've done for us, to save us, and to teach us how to live. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for your word that is meant to instruct us in life and godliness. And this morning, Father, we as your people come under your word and we ask that you would instruct us, that you would, te- that you would teach us, that you would drive out anything dark and false in us and that you would lead us into the light. Father God, I need you this morning and so I ask for the Holy Spirit to anoint me. I ask you to think through my mind and speak to my vocal cords. I want it to be all of you and none of me. I ask that you, your sheep, as you say in John, your sheep would hear your voice and a voice of another they would not follow. Would you be here? Would you direct us? Would you lead us? Would you speak to us for your glory and our joy? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, at the end of World War II, C.S. Lewis gave a speech at the University of London, King's College, called The Inner Ring. It's one of my favorite speeches he ever gave, and I encourage you to Google it and read it later. It's profound. And in this address, Lewis says that one of the core motivations for human beings is a desire to be inside some inner ring. Inside some little circle of power and human beings will do whatever it takes to get inside this ring of power. We all have a need to feel like we're on the inside of some group we admire or we can't live with ourselves. Now, in high school... This is usually clearly displayed for us at lunchtime, right? You've got the table for the jocks, and you've got the table for the theater kids, and you've got the table for the nerds, sorry, that's just what we, sorry. And we've got the table for the rebels, or whatever you want to call them, right? And walking into that environment for the first time is terrifying, right? If you're coming to a new school, you're walking in, and immediately you're like, oh, this is the biggest decision of my life. Where do I put my tape? Where do I put my tray, right? Who do I associate with? Now, this truth really hit me a few years ago. Well, I was about 15 years ago, actually, when I was a youth pastor, and someone graciously gave me a Harley Davidson. Okay, now this is the best, one of the best gifts I've ever been given. My wife and mother didn't think so, but... They gave me a Harley Davidson, and I had never, you know, I had a moped when I was 14. That was the most I'd ever, like, really been cruising around on two wheels, yeah. But I I was given this thing, and so I was like, all right, well, yes, I'm going to drive this thing. And so I get on this beast, right, and I'm riding around town, and immediately, like, I'm driving, and all of a sudden, people start waving at me. 
Like every other man or woman on a Harley starts waving at me. They're do, either go doing this or doing this, or doing this. And I'm like, first I'm like looking and I'm like, am I dressed? I don't have any leather on. Am I dressed appropriately? But then I came to realize that this is a clique. This is a group. This is an inner ring. And all it takes to be in their minds, one of the baddest human beings on the planet is to go to the Harley Davidson dealership and buy one or get one. And immediately you're into this group. Now, Lewis says that everyone dreams of being on the inside of some group. It's one of our core motivations as humans. And everyone's inner ring probably looks a little bit different. It might be a corporate inner ring of partners and CEOs. It might be a professional ring of actors or YouTubers or athletes or published authors. Or it could be just the inner ring of the perfectly put together, Instagrammable, stay-at-home mom with the well-dressed kids, the sparkling minivan, and the family who has been perfectly deglutinized. <laughs> It doesn't matter if you are in grade school or retired. Everyone wants to be on the inside of some group that they believe will make them feel like they've finally made it in life. Lewis says that this desire to be on the inner ring is actually what's making our lives miserable. Because we feel like if I can just get on the inside of this group of people that I really like and I really respect, then I will know who I am. I didn't know I was a Harley guy. Apparently, I'm a Harley guy. We had another kid. I had to sell the Harley. I'm not, I'm not a Harley guy. <clears throat> so what, what do we do? We do whatever it takes to get on the inside. And what usually happens is that we begin, if we get on the inside, we begin to dislike the people on the outside, everybody at the other lunch tables, and we envy those who are on the inside. And it makes, that envy, that envy makes our life miserable. Envy is not a sin we hear much about, but it's what's making our society miserable. Everyone wants to be in the inner ring, and we all think to ourselves, I can't be happy until I get into that inner ring. I just can't be. I despise where I'm at in this life right now. My current circumstance, my current station in life. I hate it and I won't be happy until I get there. And the inner ring is often my way out. Now I believe everyone in this room struggles with that to some degree or another. You probably daydream about a different life. A different job, a different house, a different group of friends. Hopefully not, but maybe a different church. And Paul is speaking to us today, and I think he's going to help us, and I believe that he might just set us free from this slavery to the inner ring. We're going to start by looking at verse 17 in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, Again, we're in the middle of a chapter. I don't have time to go back and give you the context of the whole book or even the context of this chapter. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7 started out with Paul's advice to people who are widowed or people who are married or people who are unmarried, people who were married and then they came to Christ and then that person, maybe, maybe the per they're married to an unbeliever. What should I do? There's all kind of confusion going on. 
basically rules for the household. Let's just say it like that. Well, verse 17, he says this. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. If you've got a highlighter or a pen, you need to underline some stuff there. Let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him. Do you see that? Assigned. There are three big words in here that we need to zero in on. We should underline them, highlight them, study them. One is Lord, and that's Jesus. There's one Lord. Lord means a master or an owner. Second, you see the word assigned. And third, you see the word called. Lord, assigned, and called. Three big words. Jesus, of course, is our master, our Lord. He, in his sovereignty, through his providence, has assigned a life for his followers. And he has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light in order for us to live this life he has predestined or assigned to us. Think about that. Jesus set the date of our birth. Jesus determined the parents that we would have. Jesus assigned to us the location of our birth, city, state, continent, everything. All the way down to the smallest parts of your DNA have been assigned to you. No matter when I was in third grade and I was raging against the Lord that I was only like three foot tall and I couldn't play basketball. Right? I wish my mom would have just said, son, this was assigned to you by Jesus. Right? I would have found my sport of wrestling much sooner, actually. Jesus Christ is the sovereign Lord of all creation. And he assigned to us the color of our skin, the cultural context in which we would be raised, the education that we would receive, and even the current station that you find yourself in. God wrote the when, where, what, and how of your life. And God has put you there as a great playwright writes in all the parts of the actor and he assigns that role to that actor. God has assigned you to lead the life that he has called you to live right where you are. Now, when I think about this and meditate on this, I get a lot of peace from this truth. Like, God has not called me to be anyone else. I've often been frustrated with the way God called me and how God called me and how I was raised and different things like that. I didn't take the traditional path of a pastor and you go to college and then you go to Bible college and then you, you know, join some denomination. And you, no, I, I went to college and I was like, I'm spending too much money for this and I'm not learning anything. I'm gonna go read books and build a construction company. And that's what I did. And then I started, was in the ministry and started a youth ministry and then the youth ministry started growing and then... I, God called me to plant a church and then I was like, I need education. And then I went back and got my education. And so I've always felt like not quite fitting into the pastorate because of my, just who God made me to be. But when I listen to this, God assigned this path to me. It gives me a lot of peace. And he's caused me to, called me to embrace this life that he has given me and live it out 
through his spirit to the best of my ability. Now, how are you doing at living the life God has assigned to you? Do you know how to be you and serve God in the station of life that you are in? Can you just be you? Or do you spend most of your time looking at and envying the lives of others? Right? You found that one Instagram account. Right? She's got 16 kids, makes homemade bread. (laughs) Right? Every single day. Sews the kids' clothes. Has a business on the side. Right? Right? million followers on Instagram. And you're like, if I could have that, then I'll be happy. Here's what we're gonna see today. God hasn't called you to live their life. Do you know how exhausting and frustrating it is to try to live somebody else's life? Spending all of your emotions and energy trying to get on the inside of some inner ring of people who you think are successful? Now listen, if you really want to live the life that God has called you to live, you're going to have to see that this desire that drives you to be in an inner ring, that desire is spiritual slavery. It's spiritual, emotional, mental slavery. See, we're all going to live for something. There's always going to be something that basically makes your life feel like it's meaningful and makes you feel like you're worthwhile. But what you don't seem to know, whatever that is, whatever that thing is, that thing is your spiritual master. That thing is controlling you. It's controlling your thoughts. It controls your desires. It controls what you want. Many times, whatever, kids in here, whatever was on your Christmas list, more than likely you'll look, if you can see this, you'll look back and go, oh, I wanted that. Not because I really, really, really wanted that. I wanted that because I thought if I got that, it would put me on the inner ring. Yeah, I'm one of those kids that got new J's for Christmas. I want to be on the inner ring of some group. See, when you do that, it's controlling you. You think it's doing something for you. It's giving you something. And it is doing something for you, but you've offered yourself to it. You've offered yourself, you've given yourself, and that means you're under its control. You're being controlled by it, and it's your spiritual master. This is why some of you, we, you can't stop swiping the card. You see the new thing? It's in the cart. It's purchased. No, no. It's click, click. It's bought already. Didn't even think about it. It's controlling you. Something that you want so bad, it's down in your gut It's your spiritual master. Let me break this down a bit. Here's how it usually works. Sometime, some point in your life, you realized that you were weak, that you were insecure, that you were afraid, that you were inadequate. You weren't cool enough, good enough, smart enough, whatever, beautiful enough. You do a self-assessment and that's your current reality. But you know somewhere down deep there that it's not okay to feel this way. It's not okay to be this way. The weak get eaten and trampled by the strong, right? So what do we do? We find, we, we look out into the world and we see some inner ring of power that will deliver us from that weakness. And we say to ourselves, what do I have to do to get in there? Well, maybe it's an education. So we get the education. Maybe I feel weak. I, I join the service. I join the military. 
Maybe it's, I was poor, now I need the money. So we get the money. Or maybe it's the neighborhood. We get into the neighborhood. We get the accolades and the attaboys. But then you come to realize something. The inner ring is a revolving door. See, you don't just get in and stay in. Two things have to happen. One, you, once you get in, if you do finally get in, you have to keep performing to stay in. That means you, your sales have to keep rising, right? You put out a great record. You got to put out another great record and then another great record, right? Your performances have to keep getting better and better or you know you will be replaced. So it creates a lot of insecurity once you're in the inner ring. And secondly, you get inside that inner ring of power and you know what you realize? <gasps> There's another ring of power deeper in. You're on the team. Now I want to be a starter. Now I want to be captain. Now I want to be D1. There's always another ring of power. There's layers to this thing. So inner ring slavery looks like this. Do this if you want in. Then you work and sacrifice and get in and then it morphs into do this and this and this and this and this and this if you want to stay in or get into the next level of power. See, that is slavery. You will never be able to rest. You will never be comfortable with who you are. You will never have joy in your life because your current circumstances are never enough and you always need the next thing. You're going to be just constantly trying to earn or trying to keep your spot on the inside. That, my friends, is an exhausting way to live. And what Paul knows is that this inner ring mentality even tries to enslave us inside the church. So unfortunately, this doesn't just get cut off when we become a Christian. We can bring these inner ring mentalities into the church itself. Let's look at verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? So here we, here we have calling again. When Christ called us to himself, let him not seek circumcision. See, circumcision was a sign and a seal of God's covenant with the Israelites in the Old Testament. It was meant to be a visible marker of God's promise to deliver his people from slavery. So when a Jew came to believe in Jesus Christ, it was God fulfilling the covenant and cutting away the sinful heart of stone and giving them a new heart of flesh. But listen, circumcision was never meant to be a way into God's inner ring. It was a sign and a seal that they had been brought into the inner ring, or the, 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 let's just say the household of God, but it was never meant to be the way in. This is religion as an inner ring. What do I have to do to get right with God? What do I have to do to make God accept me? Make God love me? The Corinthians and even the Galatians, the Galatians are even worse, were saying, oh, 
maybe circumcision will help. Now listen, many times you go to a church and churches feel like this and churches fall into this error that there's, we're always trying to give people something else to do. Like we don't want them to be, you know, just on their own or something. And so we're always giving them classes and we're always giving them the next Bible study and we're always giving them the next thing. And those are all good things, but if they're used as instruments to get into some inner ring, they become legalism. And we begin to judge ourselves in the eyes of God based on how well have I been reading my Bible? How much money have I been giving to the church? How often have I been serving, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things can be treated as works to get in to an inner ring called God's people or God's family or God's church. Well, the Corinthians here were coming to faith and they were wanting a sign, something they could do to assure themselves they were on God's team. Like, give me a jersey to show that I'm on team Jesus. Well, Paul blows this religious thinking out of the water. Look at verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So we have people here who had already been circumcised, and they're thinking, well, since circumcision doesn't count for anything, should I try to reverse the process? I'm no doctor. But they were trying to do that. And then there were other people who were saying, well, I'm, I'm a Greek, and now I came in, and look at all the promises of God in the Old Testament. Do I need to be circumcised to be a part of God's family? And so they were saying, you know, and you're having these factions form inside the church. And Paul comes in and says, circumcision or uncircumcision counts for nothing. Doesn't matter. Now, one commentator said, to declare that circumcision is nothing is an absolutely remarkable statement for a Jew to make. Because that was the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. But here, Paul is trying to compare things. He's trying to show us that the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has changed everything, even religion, even the Old Testament. It's fulfilled. Now, there is... Now, there is absolutely nothing a person can do to make themselves outwardly acceptable to God. So when you put this text in the whole context of the chapter, Paul's saying, when Christ called you, were you single? Do you want to stay single? Stay single. Were you married? Do you want to stay married? Stay married. Right? That's, that's what he's saying. You don't have to, but you can't. Are you married? Then stay married. Are you uncircumcised? That's fine. Are you circumcised? That's fine. Paul is going to illustrate this point for us and I think it's going to shock us because he takes it one step further that, is, that should blow our minds. He says this, verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 21. Were you a bond servant when called? Now that word bond servant translated there it's doulos in the Greek, and it often is translated slave. Uh, but commentators don't really like to co translate it slave today because when we hear the word slave, we immediately think of the American slave trade, right? But we can't do that here because slavery was much different in the, in, in the first century world, in the Roman world. At this time, slavery 
was a permanent part of the social structure of the first century Roman Empire. Now, slaves were all ages. Slaves were both genders. Slaves were all ethnicities. And they made up an important socioeconomic class in ancient Rome. So a bondservant, you, you, typically you weren't born into slavery. Typically, you could be, but most of the time what happened was it, you got yourself into some serious debt and you had to sell yourself into bond service until you could work it off. So this couldn't be something I could just pay off on the monthly for the next few years. I'm actually gonna have to sell myself to this person to pay off this exorbitant debt. So back in this time, you had philosophers who were slaves. You had doctors who were slaves. You had all kinds of different people who were slaves. Roughly 20% of the Roman Empire's population were slaves. 20% were slaves. Totaling as many as 12 million at the outset of the first century. Now, so, and in Corinth, scholars tell us one-third of Corinth were slaves and one-third of Corinth were freedmen. Well, freedmen means you were a slave, you were a bond servant, but you had actually worked yourself out of it and gotten your freedom. That's what a freedman was. So, kind of an ex-slave. So, Two-thirds of Corinth had been, involved, had been a slave at one point in time. So as Paul's talking about this, this situation, he's going to be talking to people who are either were slaves or had gotten their freedom from slavery. Now, to be a slave was to be in someone else's possession. They owned you. Now, they might not own you for life, but they owned you for a certain amount of time. That you were totally subjugated to one's master in everything. Greek philosopher Aristotle defined a slave as a human being who is considered an article of property. Someone who belonged completely to another person. Aristotle said he was a living tool. He had no rights. Ancient Rome viewed slaves the same way. Quote, the slave had in principle no rights, no legal status whatsoever. He was a piece of property owned by his master. As a result, a slave could be owned and dealt with like any other piece of property. He was at the mercy of his owner without rights. Now, can you imagine anything more damaging to a person's identity than being a slave? And you know what Paul says? Paul says this. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. Oof. Are you somebody's property? Don't be concerned about it. But, here's a stipulation, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. All right? So, if you see a way out, get out. Verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord, called in the Lord, as a bondservant, is a freedman of the Lord. What does this mean? You were, you, you're, a, you're a slave, but Christ has called you into his family and you have been freed in Jesus from slavery. Even if you're a slave, you have been set free in Jesus. Now I want you to think just mentally, what would this do to a person, right? Christ has called you and brought you in and you're, you're, free, you're free in God. You're free in Christ. You're free in Jesus. This would take a person who's on the bottom echelon of society and lift them up. I am in Christ. I have been set free. 
What Paul is saying here is that what has happened in them through Jesus has radically restructured their life in such a way that everything else in their life can become secondary to their calling. My station in life doesn't define me. The inner ring that I find myself in right now, even if it's on the bottom of society, doesn't define me. I am Christ's. I am in Christ. I have been set free in Christ. See, mentally, that frees a person from slavery. And did you see that last phrase in verse 22? For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman for the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. In other words, it doesn't matter if you are on the top echelon of society. When you come to Christ, what happens? You become a bondservant of Jesus. You become a slave of Jesus. That's humbling. We're trying to, what inner ring? I've worked my way into this upper echelon and now I come into a church. I want front row with my name on it. I'm rich, right? I want my own parking spot. And Paul says, no, 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 you're a slave of Christ. Whatever inner ring you've worked yourself into out there in the world doesn't matter in here. Listen, one of the realities, if you were a slave, is slaves don't get to choose their owners. Paul says, you are a slave to the one you obey. Bob Dylan's saying, you're going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So when you're working your way into that inner ring, you are in effect, selling yourself out as a slave and whoever it is you're selling yourself to, they are your master. They control your self-worth. They control your schedule. They control your affections. They own you. You might even think that you're free, but nobody is free. Everyone serves somebody. Verse 23 <clears throat> You were bought with a price. Mm. Do not become bondservants or slaves of men. Now this is a poignant illustration here that we might miss. And this is a great picture of what it actually means to become a Christian. To be a Christian means that Jesus Christ has stood on the auction block that he has called your name from before the foundations of the earth and he has bought you as a slave. A Christian is a person who has been bought by Christ. That we are a part of a people for Christ's own possession. Now that might sound terrifying to you. You mean I don't have control over my own life? No, you don't. No one does. Why do you think the algorithm exists? Ooh, the algorithm. 
social media, right? Because they know if they get what you want in front of your eyes, or if they get what they want you to want in front of your eyes, you'll want it and you'll buy it. Boy, I wish we were free. Why do we, this is fascinating. If you study casinos, Casinos are designed partially by psychologists to get you in and spend money. There's no such thing as free pop at a casino. <laughs> you don't get free drinks. Somebody's paying for it. Probably you if you don't have self-control. Here's the reality. No one is truly free. Everyone has a master. It might be your boss. It might be a board of directors. It might be your spouse, kids. Fear of failure. We are all slaves. The real difference is in who or what we are slaves to. Who owns us? Who bought us? Paul is telling first century slaves and us modern slaves by extension. When Jesus bought us, it changed our status. It changed our identity. Something fundamental happened within us that we probably can't even get our minds around. We are no longer slaves to sin and slaves to Satan. We are no longer enslaved to power and wealth and prestige and the tyranny of the inner ring. We have a new master now and we have a new identity with that new master. Often, when slaves were purchased, they would change their name. When they became freedmen, they would go back, if they had a benevolent master, they would go back to that master and they would often change their name to be a part of that family and they would work for him as a hired hand for the rest of their life. See, what Christ has done for you on that auction block has changed your identity. And your identity in Christ trumps all other defining factors of your life. It doesn't matter what school you went to anymore. It doesn't matter how much money you make anymore. It doesn't matter what car you drive or what neighborhood you live in. Are you in Christ or not? If you are slave or free, Paul says... If you are rich or poor, black or white, college educated or high school dropout, we have been bought. We are owned. We belong to someone. That's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean, oh, what does it mean to be a Christian? Oh, I go to church. Oh, I'm part of the missional king. Oh, I give my money. No, no, no. To be, to be a Christian means you were bought and paid for by Jesus Christ. Jesus owns us. And if you know what that means, you will see why that is life-changing good news. Think about this. What did it cost Jesus to buy us? It didn't cost him a day's wage. He didn't get us on markdown. We cost Jesus his life. We cost God's own son his life. I can't even get my mind around it as I was meditating this week on the incarnation. That God who created everything, who's above and beyond everything, somehow put his son into it. The one who gives bread to all was hungry. The word became flesh. A baby who couldn't speak. The word became a baby who couldn't speak. 
The one who's holding all things in his hand was held in his mother's arm. Who eventually would go to the cross for us. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says this, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold. Jesus didn't stand on the auction block with a little bit of silver and gold and buy us. No, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The sinless son of the holy God, the blood of God was spilled for us. Listen, sometimes it's the cost paid for something that makes it valuable. What does that mean? Too many preachers say stupid stuff like God looked down and you were worth so much to him that he came to, wait, 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 what? And I get this picture In my mind, of Gladiator, if you hear Gladiator and and he gets sold off into slavery and you you show up at the auction block and there's all kinds of different slaves up there. There's guys that look like He-Man, right? And there's there's women and kids and everything else up there. And and it depends on what you want the slave for, but if you want a warrior or if you want somebody that's gonna, you know, plow your field, you're looking at the, the guy like, that guy is jacked, I want that guy. Jesus Christ, to take the analogy all the way to Ephesians, where Ephesians says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, Jesus looked over the heads of all the jacked, talented slaves, and he looked to the pile of dead corpses in the back, and he said, I will purchase those. That's who I came for. The ones who can offer me nothing who are dead in their trespasses and sins, those are the ones I want to, and what am I going to buy? What am I, what am I going to purchase them with? The blood of God. See, that means, here, this is hard. We weren't worth it. <laughs> I wasn't worth it. Jesus' life was more precious and valuable than all of sinful humanity combined. If you put Jesus on the scale and all of humanity that have ever lived or ever would live, Jesus was more precious than all of them combined. Jesus didn't die for us because we were valuable. Listen, his death makes us valuable. The cost paid for us creates our value. When I think about we're all slaves, what matters is who owns us. What, what matters is whose slave we are. See, all other masters are brutal. You fail them, they kill you. You fail them, they fire you. You should consistently show up late to work, what's gonna happen? Gone. All other masters have the whip at our back and say more, 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 more. They're like Pharaoh in the Old Testament who when things get tough and people, what do they say? I want you to make more bricks with less straw. See, slave masters chew you up and spit you out, but Jesus is the only slave master who dies for those who have already failed him. 
I ask you this morning, who's your slave master? Who's driving you? Think about it. What happens when we fail Jesus? He is the only master who reigns with sovereign grace. He bought us when we were slaves to sin. That means we were already broke when he bought us. So when we fail him, he's not surprised. First time I preached from this text, I used this illustration. Imagine if you had <sighs> Marty McFly's famous car. <laughs> right? You could, kids, you don't know about this, right? But you can go back or you can go forward into the future. Now imagine when, if you, just this ability, let's say you're going and you're buying a used car. Now Carfax is nice, right? It tells you what happened in the past. But I want Marty McFly's car so I can go into the future to find out exactly when this thing's going to break down. And I'm selling it a week before, okay? Right? Now, imagine if you could do that. You already know. If you could go to the future, you already know this car, right? It's going to need new tires here. It's going to need, you know, whatever, new transmission, whatever. You already know. Now, when, if you go back to today, you can actually purchase that car with perfect peace. You know everything that's good. You're never going to be let down by this car. You're never going to be disappointed in this car. You know when it's going to break down, right? That's how Jesus bought us. He already knew every failure we would make. He already knew every sin we would commit in the future. And he bought us anyway. What does that mean? This is what it means when we, we say things like, Jesus knows our frame. That's why Jesus said of Jesus, a bruised reed he would not break. Jesus is never surprised by our sin or our failures or our stupidity. God has assigned to us a life and our value is not determined by our usefulness to him or our moral achievements. Our value comes wholly from the cross. Now this realization does something so profound inside of a human being. It makes their identity so secure that they can enjoy the life that the Lord has assigned to him and they are not controlled by the outside rings of power that threaten them. They can stand for the truth when the whole world is caving to some inner ring. Why? I know what God says about me. I don't care what my boss says about me. I don't care what this other inner, inner ring of power, this political ring of power, this collective group on the internet, I don't care because I know what Christ says about me and I know what Christ has done for me. I don't have anything to prove anymore. I don't have any inner ring to work myself into. Jesus Christ has already bought me into the God's inner ring, which is his family, which is his church, with his own precious blood. The beginning of the new year, I want us to think about this because obviously we walk out these doors and it's a tough world. All the other masters, all the other inner rings cause me to constantly judge myself 
navel gaze. How am I doing? Is my marriage good enough? Are my kids good enough? Is my career good enough? Do I have enough money in the bank? And it makes my life miserable. Constantly feeling, am I doing enough to get in? Church, I don't want you to feel like that here. Christ has brought us in. We are in, and if he has brought us in, nothing can bring us out. Only in Christianity. Only in Christianity. I don't say that lightly. Do we get judged not on our work, but on Christ's finished work on the cross? That Jesus bought us and paid for us to be brought into this inner ring of his family. He paid the bill, so nothing, can, nothing I can do can change that status. What does that mean? This is hard. Listen, if you're living in unrepentant sin, do you need to repent and turn from your sin? Absolutely. But in Christ, God is pleased with you. That pleasure, that joy, that security should be one of the reasons you turn back to him in repentance. Understanding this about our identity, about what Christ has done, that we are his, changes everything about us. True Christianity is not about adding Jesus to my life, just adding another inner ring that I'm trying to work myself into. So I have my athletic accomplishments at the gym that I'm trying to work myself into, my career accomplishments, my educational ones, and now my spiritual religious ones. No. Being in Christ is about realizing everything that he's already done for us. Seeing the price he paid to purchase us and then devoting ourselves completely to him submitting wholly to his will and seeking to please him above all else. The scripture here is saying, when it says circumcision counts for, for anything nor so uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Do we still want to follow the scriptures? Of course we do. But it's not to get in, it's because we are in and the commandments are the best way to live. This is God's best life for us. What does this mean for us? Well, let me just read our last verse, verse 24. So brothers and sisters, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. With God. See, that's the blessing of Christianity. It's not just forgiveness. It's not just justification. It's not just sanctification. It's not just glorification. We get to be with God. We are brought into the family, and the greatest thing about the family is our Father is God. Man, I, we are being brought in. C.S. Lewis talks about the Trinity, and Scott already talked about it a little bit, being like a dance, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And theologians talk about us getting brought into that in some way. We'll, we'll never be God, but we, get, we don't get to share his essence, but we get to share his presence with God. That's the greatest blessing of being a Christian. Now, I'm gonna ask you this morning, are you in Christ? Are you a slave of Jesus Christ? Does he determine how you live your life? 
Does he determine what you do with your schedule? Does he determine how you spend your finances? That's what it means to be in Christ. We get our marching orders from our king because he bought us with his precious blood. If you're not this morning, I'm gonna invite you to take Christ. Christians are gonna come up and we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together and I'm gonna invite you not to take the supper with us, but to take Christ instead. How do you take him? You take him by faith. You say, Jesus, I see what you did for me on the auction block. I see what you did for me on the cross. You spilled your precious blood to save me and I believe it today. I want to be yours today. And no matter how much failure, how much sin is in your past, you can be washed white as snow leaving here today. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, we thank you for your grace. There is nothing like your grace. You don't give us what we deserve. You give us what Christ earned for us on the cross, and not just on the cross, but in his life and his death and his resurrection and his glorification and ascension. Thank you that you are making Christians into his image. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. You are sanctifying and glorifying us even now. Father, for this new year, we want more of Christ. We want more of Christ in us. We want to be conformed more to his image. We want to recognize that he is our owner He is, in one sense, our slave master, but he is the benevolent slave master who gives himself for us. Show us who we are in Christ. Confirm that theological truth to our hearts so that we believe it. And we don't just believe it, but we cherish it and it becomes the most important thing about us. And we can go live as Christ's representatives in this city that you sent us to. Lord Jesus, now we come and we invite you to the table. Well, actually, you invite us to your table. On the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you. And you took the cup and you said, this is the cup of the new covenant. It's filled with your blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. And we are to eat it together, remembering your sacrifice, proclaiming your death and your victory over death until you should come again. So we want to do that this morning. Father of mercies, Thank you for the gift of this bread, which we confess provides us with the body of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask you to enable us to eat it in faith and to be made more fully members of his heavenly body through Christ our Lord. Father of mercies, thank you for the gift of this wine, which we confess provides us with the blood of your son, our savior. We ask you to enable us to drink it in faith and to be conformed more and more to the image of his death through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen and amen.